Well, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. We have uh, one more Sunday after today on our worship series. I hope this has been stimulating to you. Um, some of the changes that the worship team did, hope that was uh, uh, encouraging. I, I, I know it was different, especially last Sunday when we didn't have any uh, music. Um, by the way, uh, we got our heads together after that service and said, look, we deprived them of music one Sunday. Can we compensate? So next Sunday, we're going to do extra sing, all right? Those of you who hate to sing, don't stay home. Uh, we'll have other things as well, but we'll do some extra sing next Sunday. So to wrap up the series on worship, we're going to look today at communion uh, as worship and next Sunday as baptism as worship. And uh, it's funny, I, I bought this bottle of wine last night. I've never bought alcohol in my entire life. They carded me. <laughs> I looked at this like 17-year-old kid and I'm like, are you serious? Yes, sir. Okay, here you go. I said, you just made my day. <laughs> so a, a question for you. When you come in on a Sunday morning like today and you see the table set up, the elements here, what goes through your mind? Is it uh, anticipation? Excitement? Indifference? Fear? What is it that goes through your mind? That's just a food for thought question. And second question, do you ever think about what goes through God's mind when he sees the table set up and his people gathered to celebrate this? So, um, Thank you for those of you who have been praying for my health a week from tomorrow uh, on my back. I have a herniated disc and also bone spurs on the, at the same spot on the spine on the other side. And um, so I was with the surgeon the other week and we're having this conversation. He says, and the risks are from the floor to the ceiling. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Instead of saying you could be paralyzed or you could die, risks are from the floor to the ceiling. And so I've got an idea. And when he was finished with his, Dr. Kager, I said, tell you what, <clears throat> I would like if you could um, give me just general anesthetic, and then I'd like to help. And so if I could wield the scalpel a little bit, I, I would love to be able to tell people I shaved off this disc that's impinging on my spinal. I would love to talk about that. And, and if you're not comfortable with that, you know, if I could just... Hold some of them to you when you need them or something. It was quiet for a little bit. And then he said, sir, he said, I think we should just skip working on your back and go directly to your brain. <laughs> because you know nothing about surgery. I assume you don't, do you? I said, no. You don't know anything about surgery or medicine. We have the training and the experience and you should let us do it. Sign that paper that says you're going to agree and allow us to cut you. I said, okay. 
So I signed my name. And on that day, I'll go in there. They'll put me under. They'll cut. They'll hopefully fix whatever's wrong. And then I'll see you in a couple weeks. Did you ever think about when we celebrate communion up here on the table that points to you or me? There's a cracker that speaks of our Savior's body, and there's some juice that speaks of his blood. There's nothing there that speaks of you or me. If you get saved, someone asks them, how did that happen? A Pharisee might say, I did it. This was the reason that the Pharisees were not happy to see Jesus and weren't excited about what he was saying or what he was offering. They felt they didn't really need what he was offering. After all, they, they could get to God their old-fashioned way. They earned it. They did it themselves. I can keep the law adequately and please you. Some other people might say, and I think many evangelicals would fit in this category, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> God and I did it together. He did this, I did this. And oftentimes the stories that we tell about our salvation have a lot to do, more to do with us than God. But if you're a spiritual failure like me, we say Jesus did it all. And I think every time we take communion, God reminds us that though we are spiritual failures, failures, It doesn't matter because his son wasn't. Every time we take communion, God reminds us that though we are spiritual failures, it doesn't matter because his son wasn't. Chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. In other words, what he's saying is not something he just made up, not something that he thought was a good idea. We know from Galatians chapter 1 that Paul actually was taken out of the wilderness after his conversion. Took him, uh, Jesus took him out in the wilderness and tutored him. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, it's a spiritual failure. I'm so grateful for what communion represents to me. That what was accomplished in heaven and what was accomplished here on earth in my life, you accomplished. And this morning there are some of us here who are looking in the mirror and remembering 
what we've done. And we're scared of communion. And oh, how much we need to look in the mirror face. But Jesus' body and the love that you expressed to us in him while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And then my prayer would be that this morning when we take the cup, for Christian when we take the cup and when we take the bread, the cracker, that we would see you in them and not see ourselves. And that as a result, this might be a, these might be moments of great joy and freedom and delight because of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Did I clarify? I didn't have that conversation with my surgeon. I want to ask and answer two questions this morning. One, what is communion and where did it begin? And secondly, what does communion do? What is communion and where did it begin? And so we want to go back to where it did begin, Mark chapter 14, one of a number of times that this first supper is recorded. You know, we call it the Last Supper, right? The Last Supper disciples, and there's a painting of the Last Supper, but really it was the first supper. When we think about communion, it was the first time Jesus inaugurated what we're going to participate in this morning. Mark 14, beginning verse 12, on the first day of the feast of un- festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? And so Jesus sent two of them instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up, and that is where you should prepare our meal. And so the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Now drop down to verse 22. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, and he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out on a sacri- as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink the kingdom of God. So this is taking place just before Jesus is betrayed and ultimately crucified. And Jesus was celebrating a feast that his people, the Jewish people, had been celebrating for 1,500 years, Feast of Passover. It was to commemorate the night that God delivered Israel from Egypt. The night that God delivered Israel from Egypt. If you remember the story... God had been bringing Pharaoh a lot of plagues to try to force his hand to let his slaves, the Israelite people, go. And even when, Israel, or even when Pharaoh said he would do that, he would capitulate, then he would change his mind he would, and he would double-cross them. 
And finally, you get to the 10th plague. And God told Israel, get ready, because this is going to be the one that does it. This is Pharaoh's hand. I'm going to go throughout the land, and I'm going to execute the oldest son of every one in the land. But you can avoid losing any children that night by killing a lamb, and you eat it, and you smear some of the blood of the lamb over the door jams of your house so that when I come through the land, I'll know that's a marked house and I won't take any of your sons. And that's what happened. And so the angel goes through the land and in every Egyptian household, there's wailing and moaning in the morning because they find dead sons. But over in Goshen, where the Israelites lived, that wasn't the case. There, there were no dead sons. And so it was hurry, get up, escape, because Pharaoh finally had given in. He said, fine, get out of here, run, leave quickly, because he was afraid of what else would happen. And the other portion of the Passover meal that Jesus highlighted, because there were a number of things that were on the table that night that aren't spoken of Scripture. Jesus picked the bread, and he picked the wine. There would have been four cups of wine on the table. The bread would hark back to, we have to leave in a hurry. And so there's no time for the bread to rise. Get your bread and run. And so this morning, in the basket, and you'll see in these trays, it's not bread like you might have to make toast in the morning. It's thin because there's no yeast in it. And of course, in, in uh, Jewish history, as well as New Testament Christianity, yeast came to represent sin as well. And so it's a picture of no sin. So for this week-long festival, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they are reminded again and again about how it was delivered from Egypt. And yet on this night, Jesus is instituting something new of how new people are going to be delivered in a new way. And so he brings out the cup and he brings out the bread. Uh, By the way, next March... Um, we're going to have a special meal uh, shortly before Easter. We're going to have a Seder meal. And if you were here about seven, eight years ago, we had somebody come from Chosen People Ministries, Ron and Luda Ford, and they led us in a banquet that night showing all of the things in a Seder meal that an Orthodox Jewish home would, would celebrate, Passover, all the things in that meal that point to the Messiah. And so we're going to do that again. Actually, Ron and Luda are now full-time missionaries in Israel, uh, but they're home uh, next year for part of the year. And uh, they're going to come back to Keystone and lead us through that. And I hope you can make it because um, it's so uh, invigorating to me to see these Old Testament uh, festivals that Jewish people still celebrate and how they were in part designed to point them to the coming Uh, Messiah. It's going to be a great time. So Jesus took this existing festival and he converted it. Interestingly enough, a lot of scholars believe that of the four cups of wine that will be on the table at any Seder next spring that any household has, that he picked the third cup of wine, which interestingly enough was called the cup of redemption, to redeem people. And our Jewish friends wait to be redeemed. And we look back in communion and say, we have been redeemed. So communion is this picture of 
the work of Jesus Christ, the bread representing that he gave up for us, the cup representing the blood that Jesus shed for us. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it also says that the blood of bulls and goats that the Jewish people were counting on for 1,500 years could never take away sins. So communion is a picture of a once-for-all taking away sins that Jesus accomplished. So then the question, what does communion do? So when you leave today, having drunk a small portion of grape juice and eaten this little portion uh, of a cracker, what, what does communion do for you? Well, first of all, a couple things it doesn't do. It doesn't save anybody. If you're here this morning and you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ and you drink grape juice and you eat cracker, that's it. You got a little cracker. It did nothing for you in that sense. There are sometimes people that think, you know, I'm, I'm really, I, I have been... My life has been marked more by disobedience lately than by obedience. So I'll go and take communion, and that'll make me better. Doesn't. It doesn't make you better with the Lord. It doesn't make you right with the Lord. What makes you right with the Lord is what Jesus did. It makes you right with the Lord. It makes me right with the Lord. Ephesians 2.6 says that, Because of Jesus Christ, we have been seated up here with God. We are united with God because of Jesus Christ, not because of our righteousness or our lack of righteousness. Period. So there's a couple of things that it doesn't do. And as part of this conversation, a little bit about what some other Christians think about communion. So, for example, our Catholic friends if they would come to a celebration like this, they would think that when they receive, after the priest has blessed the elements, and they receive the wafer, the bread, and if they're in a church where they can receive the cup as well, that's not true in every Catholic church. Some Catholic churches, only the priest can drink from the cup, and the people only can have the wafer. But they were actually believe that Jesus, he, he, those wafers and the, that wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ actually become. Now, they believe that it doesn't change its properties in the sense that uh, it changes properties, but not its appearance or its taste. So it doesn't taste like human flesh. That's a good thing. It doesn't taste like human blood. That's a good thing. But they believe it actually changes. They say that Jesus is physically present in the communion elements. They, we call that transubstantiation, trance, meaning the substance has changed. And you might wonder where that would come from. Let me just show you uh, John chapter 6, what Jesus preached in a sermon one day that really grossed people out, and, and a lot of followers abandoned him as a result of this sermon. John 6, verse, uh, beginning of verse 53, said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. Just imagine hearing that for the first time. You have no qualifying scripture to compare this with to conclude that he's speaking metaphorically. He says, but anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. 
And one of the reasons that the Christian church was so fiercely persecuted in the first century or so was because they, they believed them to be cannibals, that these people have this ceremony where they eat the body of their leader and they drink the blood, even though that's not what the early church taught. In fact, even the Catholic church has not taught this uh, except for the last 1,000 years or so. But for them, Jesus is physically present in communion. Our Lutheran friends, uh, by the way, someone has said, if you go back in history and see how seriously people took something like communion, if you don't, you don't know the history of the Evangelical Free Church, it, there was a over, in part over communion because people were receiving the communion elements uh, next to people that lived next door to them who were horrific profligates. I mean, they, they, they lived a life in hostility to the Lord, and yet on Sunday morning they took communion. And these people are saying, no, this is, this is just for believers. Just for believers. This, this is a fundamental problem. So communion held great weight in the history. In the 1500s, for example, you remember the name Bloody Mary from your history classes? I know you loved history, and you all paid attention in class. So Mary was queen of England for three years. And the Protestant Reformation had begun to roll through England and get a, a, a real foothold. Mary was a Catholic. And she was a rabid Catholic. And so she began to put, burn people at the stake because they had a different view of communion. And I was reading this article and this person said, you know, we think about those days as marked by brutality, and they were. But maybe our days are marked by, more by superficiality in that they saw something like communion as a weighty issue And so during her reign, Mary, in three years, burned at the stake 288 people because of a different view about communion. Theirs was the Lutheran view. And the Lutheran view was that, yes, Jesus is physically present in communion, but he's not com present in the element. He's physically present at communion. And then a lot of, uh, uh, let's just say, Reformed Presbyterian people would say, no, Jesus is spiritually present at communion, and then a lot of other evangelicals, and this would mark me, is that Jesus is no more present this morning than he normally, no more present than normal. That what we're doing this morning is a symbol, it's a memorial remembering what Jesus has done for us. This might be a good time to say uh, to parents, what do I do about my children as they're growing up and they see me taking of the elements and they want to? What, what should I let them? Shouldn't I let them? And I would say the most important thing is, have you ascertained after watching them for several years, after have you been convinced by fruit, growing fruit, not perfect fruit, but growing fruit, that they are truly born again? And if you are, and I would say don't do that based on, on Thursday, they made a profession of faith, Sunday's communion, let's go for it. Because nothing in Scripture tells us that we can be sure of anyone's salvation, let alone our own, based on a prayer that we've prayed. It's rather, you shall know them by their fruits. Watch them over a period of time, I, might, I would say several years, enough to be confident, yeah, they're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. They still mess up, absolutely, but I'm seeing change in their lives. And if that's the case, 
then have a conversation with them about the meaning of the elements. And if they can understand that it's more than a snack, you're probably, you know, I, I would say err on the sides, side of permission rather than, than restriction. There, uh, we've talked about some things that um, communion doesn't do. Here's what it does do. One, it points us to a future kingdom. Matthew chapter 26, this is what Jesus says, 26, verse uh, 29. Again, this is, this is wrapping up the, the so-called last supper, I call the first supper. Jesus says, mark my words, I will not drink wine again new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, there's a future kingdom coming, and I can't wait to celebrate with you when that occurs. And so communion, every time we have it, not only points back, but points ahead to this future kingdom. Secondly, it visibly unites us with each other. Uh, back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, starting at verse 17. Paul says, and though we are many, meaning us Christians, we all eat from the one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? So we are drawn together. This is a great time of fellowship together. We want to do this together. I'm not a big fan of individual personal communion, in part because it seems like every time you see it in the scriptures, it's a together thing. We're doing this together, and it's a, it's, it's a tangible way of, of us. It visibly unites us with each other. Third, and this is the thing I think we probably think of most, it helps us remember Jesus and his sacrifice. Back to 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 24. Again, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Verse 25, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. And why do we do that? And we forget that Jesus did it all. And we forget the significance of it. And so every time we do it, it's an opportunity for God to remind us to remember Jesus. And lastly, it reminds spiritual failures like me about him his success for them. Now the free church statement of faith and the keystone statement of faith reads this about communion. The Lord Jesus mandate baptism and the Lord's supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now we say, we call them ordinances rather than sacraments as our Catholic friends and our Lutheran friends might because we don't think that there's some sort of magical thing that happens here. God's called us, these are two practices that he's called us to do, um, not because they, they give us something, do something, but they do declare something for him. And these ordinances confirm, I love that last part, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. And what I think takes place when, when we're going to take these elements in just a few minutes is that we are nourished because we are, we are um, God's saying, I did what was necessary to save you. Go out and rejoice and delight in that. And so... How do we prepare for communion? How do we not prepare for communion? I, if you were here a number of years ago, I preached a sermon on communion. 
And I, I shared with you my probably different interpretation regarding the verses in 1 Corinthians 11 than probably some of uh, you have heard. And so, for example, uh, Paul says, verse 20, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you uh, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. I, you're not going to get drunk on this little thimbleful. Uh, it's grape juice, by the way. Even if it was wine, you're not going to get drunk on that, right? So right there is a tip-off, a little different here. Uh, as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly don't praise you for this. And then he says in verse 27, anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And I'm like, ah. I, I don't, you know, how do I do this right? I don't want to get it wrong because I don't want to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 30, 28, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread, drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And that is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. No wonder people come with a superficial understanding of this text, come to communion like, ha, 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 ha. I hope I come out alive. But the context is everything. The first part is talking not just about a communion celebration, but about a love feast where everybody's getting together and eating dinner, not just having a little snack. And people are bringing food for the dinner. And they're supposed to share with those that don't have. And they don't. And that is why the judgment comes. Sinning against the, the body and the blood of the Lord. should examine yourself. Uh, we don't want to drink judgment on ourselves. We, as often as you eat and drink, you should um, announce the Lord's death until he comes. And instead, you're announcing selfishness and self-preoccupation and, and greed and all of that. And that at the table is the problem. Don't you have homes to eat in? Don't you have homes to, to drink in? I, my concern is that some people looking at this text superficially over the years have come to communion with fear and anxiety and I can see it sometimes on the faces where there's a great deal of severity and sobriety and anxiety. And I'm like, oh, this is a time of joy, a time of freedom, because in Christ you have been set free. It's not based on your measurement. It's based on Christ's measurement. You're only going to drink something that represents his blood, and you're only going to eat something that represents his body. There's not a thing on this table that speaks about your worthiness or mine. And that should make us say, praise God. That should make us say, praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. The table is meant to liberate. It's meant to fill us with joy, not consternation and anxiety. It's a gift. It's a gift. Do you remember I asked the question back at the beginning? What do you think God thinks when we come to the table? Let me respond to this, that question. I think that when we come to the table, 
He loved proclaim what his son has done in earning our salvation. That he loves that we are united with each other and with him because of Jesus. I think when we come to the table and he sees us from the heavens gathered together around the table that we are thinking about his son's future kingdom as well as what he has earned for us today. He loves that we are being reminded once again that communion is not about the magnitude of our failures but about the magnitude of his sacrifice for us. And that is really, really good news. Amen.